Welcome. Here is this past Sunday's sermon from Grant Memorial Church. My name is Cam. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're thrilled that you have joined us as we fall back into our regular rhythm of services at 9 and 11. Uh, just, this is just more for my own curiosity. Anyone show up at 10.15 today? Okay, I hope you all got the memo. Well, I trust that uh, 2024 has gotten off to a great start for everyone, aside from the weather we're experiencing today. Uh, it's moments like today where we all kind of have those internal questions of why do we live here, right? Uh, but, but beyond that, I, I pray that you've entered 2024 prepared to come to know and trust God this year a little bit better than you did last year. That's my prayer for all of us, that we would come to know God better than we knew him last year. Now, speaking of 2024, I want to remind you about the way in which we as a church family are kicking off the new year, and that is with prayer. As you should have heard over the past number of weeks, our church family is partnering with our brothers and sisters at Anchor Point and Church of the Rock to fast and pray for two weeks this January. And friends, believe it or not, that initiative starts today. So starting today, we're encouraging uh, all of us to fast and pray for the next 14 days until January 28th. Now, we're not going to mandate uh, just what you fast from. There will be some who, uh, who may, you know, who may fa- do a complete food fast. There may be others who, who fast from specific things. Our friends at Anchor Point are participating in a media fast. Others have decided to refrain from social media specifically. Now, we don't feel it's our place to dictate what we are all to refrain from, but it is our desire that we would all fast from something so that we're reminded to pray and afforded the time to do it over these next two weeks. If you're doing a social media fast, when you have that urge to scroll, take that as a reminder to pray. If you're doing a food fast, when you experience hunger pangs, take that as a reminder to pray. If you're fasting from shows or movies or video games, use some of that time that you would be watching or playing to pray instead. Again, the point of this is prayer that we would make time to pray, that we would be prompted to do it as we enter the new year that God has graciously given to us. Now along the way, in addition to what we're doing individually, throughout these next two weeks of fasting and prayer, we're going to gather corporately to pray together. Uh, Once at Anchor Point Church, this coming Tuesday, January 16th, so just in two days, uh, at Anchor Point, we're going to gather. Then the following Tuesday, January 23rd, we're going to go to Church of the Rock, where we're all going to gather to pray corporately. And then the Sunday after that, January 28th, we're all going to gather here at Grant, um, where we will break our fast together. We'll have supper at 5.30, and then we'll end with one final prayer gathering here in this place. And I encourage you, Yes, you, 
right? These are the kind of announcements, the kind of conversations where people go, yeah, it's for somebody beside me, right? This is for somebody else. No, no, no. I encourage you to consider what you will fast from and to plan to join us for one, two, or all of those prayer gatherings as we fix our eyes on God to start this new year and we fix our hearts on those in our community, city, and beyond. I'm personally really excited to see what God does in our midst during this intentional season of prayer. Well, church, we're back. And by that, I mean we find ourselves back in our series in Genesis after taking a short break for the Advent Christmas season. Now, by way of reminder, before our break, we had been following a man named Abraham and his family as God established them as his very own people through whom he would bless the entire world. And in these past few passages in Genesis, God and Abraham had sealed this arrangement through the covenant and sign of circumcision, a symbol of the special relationship between God and his people. Now, along with this covenant, God had promised that Abraham would bear a son in his old age and that through that son, ultimately, God would rescue the world who had largely turned their backs on him. Now, this son, as we pick up today, has yet to arrive. And Abraham's hope of this promise had been partially misplaced in a son named Ishmael that was born to Abraham by his wife's slave, Hagar. But where we pick up this morning, Abraham is the leader of a people But he's not yet fathered a nation of descendants as God promised that he would. And he's perhaps coming to terms with the reality that this promise might look differently than he had anticipated as he nears his 100th birthday. And it's here where our text picks up as Abraham is visited by some pretty impressive guests. Now before we get to the text itself, let me ask you, the familiar imaginative question that you've likely needed to ponder before. If you could share a meal or have coffee with one historical figure, dead or alive, who would that be? Do you heard that question before? Active, active group we got here today. Okay, well, just to make sure that we are all participating, why don't you turn to the people around you and share your answer to that question. If you could have coffee or a meal with one person, uh, dead or alive, who would that person be? Now, I'm, I'm sure, it sounds like you've got a list, like everybody pulled out their paper you've already got prepared. I'm sure that the answers around the room are quite varied, right? There are some who would share a meal with a deceased family member, right? Either to converse with them once again like old times or perhaps to meet a family member that they never had the privilege of meeting. Uh, Others, I'm sure, shared that they would choose to meet with a celebrity, an athlete, actor, musician, or author that they've admired for a long time, right? For me, C.S. Lewis would be right up at the top of that list. 
Still others, I'm sure, either fully genuine or simply looking for Sunday school gold stars this morning, said they would like to have dinner with Jesus. Right? Meeting with the creator God himself rather than some created being. And because we're at church this morning, I must say that that is the right answer. <laughs> so sorry to everybody else. You should have known better. Well, in our text today, Abraham actually has that very opportunity. Abraham gets to share a meal with God Almighty. And so I invite you to turn with me in your copy of the scriptures to Genesis 18 so we can read about this unique encounter together. We're going to start at verse 1 and read through to the end of verse 15. All right, Genesis 18. The Lord appeared to Abraham near the gates of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of, the, of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. He said, if I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought and then you may wash your feet and rest under this tree. Let me get you something to eat so you can be refreshed and then go on your way now that you have come to your servant. Very well, they answered, do as you say. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah. Quick, he said, get three seahs of the finest flour and knead it and bake some bread. Then he ran to the herd and selected a choice tender calf and gave it to a servant who hurried to prepare it. Then he brought some curds and milk, to, milk in the calf that had been prepared and set these before them. While they ate, he stood near them under a tree. Where is your wife, Sarah, they asked him. There, in the tent, he said. Then one of them said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already very old, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, After I'm worn out and my Lord is old, will I now have this pleasure? Then the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, will I really have a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I did not laugh. But he said, yes, you did laugh. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray today that... Uh, you would highlight, that you would boldface what it is that we need to take from this so that we can know you better and follow you, Lord, in the way that you're calling us to. Amen. What a great ending to that little passage, hey? This is quite the account, though, isn't it? Right? The, the context starts right off the top. Verse 1 tells us that Abraham was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. So this is a pretty regular day for Abraham, right? The morning chores had been completed, and he, like everyone else, had retreated to his tent for the customary midday siesta in the shade. And our text says that while he was there, he looked up and saw three men standing nearby. 
Now, whether the sudden presence of these men was because he had actually dozed off or because the men had appeared out of nowhere, as verse 1 may suggest, we don't know. But Abraham had evidently not seen their approach and found himself startled in the presence of three men who he had never seen before. Now, the obvious question of the day is, who are these three men standing before Abraham? Well, if we read closely, our text gives us a few clues. In verse 1, we read the words, the Lord appeared to Abraham. Right? The Hebrew word here used is the personal name for God, Yahweh. As we continue reading in verse 13, the text says that the Lord, Yahweh, spoke to Abraham. In verse 14, the one speaking refers to himself as Yahweh, the Lord. And so our text tells us that among the visitors is God himself. This encounter is not simply an angelic visitation. This is not merely an appearance by three angels. This is what uh, theologians call a theophany, which is simply a large word meaning a temporary visual manifestation of God. Now, because of this, early commentators of this passage taught that this was a Trinitarian experience, right? That the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit had all taken on human form and were represented by these three men, that Abraham had been visited by the three members of the Trinity, which is a really cool idea, but this is not likely the best explanation, since later on in the text, in verse 22, two of the men leave to go down to Sodom, Well, Abraham remains to have a conversation with one of the men, and the text refers to this remaining man as Yahweh, or the Lord. And to seal this explanation, when we get to chapter 19, verse 1, the text says that it is only the two angels who proceed into Sodom. So the best explanation, according to the text, is that the three men are God and two angelic companions. Right? And so what we read in this text is the account of Abraham's meal with God and two of his angels. And what I would like to, us to do with this text today in our time together is to notice three things in this encounter that will hopefully encourage us or inform us in our own encounters with the Almighty. Now the first thing that we see in this text is Abraham's hospitality. Abraham's hospitality. Think about the text that we just read. All all those details. The the hospitality displayed here by Abraham really is unmatched. And it begins with the way that he greets these men. You see, while we know who the visitors are, thanks to the text in front of us, Abraham, on the other hand, doesn't likely know this immediately. But he still greets them with a special honor. Look at verse 2. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. Not even knowing who these men were yet, Abraham bows down before them, verse 2. Then he begs them to stay and not simply pass by, verse 3. He supplies water for their feet to be washed, verse 4. He gives them rest in the shade, verse 4. And he invites them to stay, as the text says, to eat a little something, verse 5. 
And then as we read on, we see that his hospitality only intensifies as the snack he offers them becomes a feast. Look at verse 6. So Abraham hurried into the the tent to Sarah. Quick, he said, get three seahs of the finest flour and knead it and bake some bread. Friends, the amount of flour that Abraham asked Sarah to knead is roughly 36 pounds (laughs) or 16 kilos of flour. Right? This is not a, simply a light snack for three men. That is enough to feed a small army. Right? So we're starting to see this, how the hospitality is turning here. Well, in addition to this truckload of bread, they cook a hand-selected choice tender calf, verse 7, and serve it along with curds and goat milk, and a prized delicacy in the ancient, ancient Near East, verse 8, All while Abraham stood by, ready to assist them in any way, verse 8. And all along the way, the text emphasizes the urgency of Abraham's actions. Verse 2, he hurried. Verse 6, Abraham hurried. Verse 6, quick, he said. Verse 7, he ran. Verse 8, he hurried to prepare it. I was talking to someone after the first service, and they said, does that mean that it was Abraham who created fast food? Their joke, not mine, okay? So give them credit or the blame, whatever you want to do. But church, what these words tell us, right? What Abraham did and what the author intends for us to know is that Abraham is not doing any of this begrudgingly. He was eager, right? Willingly and sacrificially putting the needs of these men, these strangers, above his own, Now, in light of this, and for the sake of contrast, let me ask you, how do you act when strangers come to your door? Most of us freeze, right? We're like, do you think they know we're home? (laughs) As we kind of reach over and slowly dim the lights, fade it to black, ignore the doorbell until they leave. Right? Or if we do go to the door, we just kind of like crack the door open just enough. We let them stand out in the cold, make their sales pitch or whatever it is that they're doing. Well, you know, we look as inconvenienced as, and, uh, and uninterested as possible, muttering things like, I don't have any cash on me, or I give at work, or whatever it happens to be. You know what I'm talking about. But can you imagine if the next time a stranger came to, you, to your door, you swept them into your house... You begged them not to leave, and you prepared a feast for them, right? Now, I understand that our culture is a little different today, and this behavior might result in another visit from law enforcement, but it certainly emphasizes how hospitable Abraham was in comparison to what we see as hospitality today, doesn't it? Remember, these men were not old friends of Abraham. These were not family members. These were strangers that Abraham pulled out all the stops for at a great cost to himself. Abraham wanted them to be blessed as a result of passing by his home. That as a result of interacting with him, they would feel rested, refreshed, and honored. Can you imagine what our Christian witness would be if we thought the same way? That when people interact with us, they would feel cared for and blessed simply because they encountered us or because they came to our home? 
Imagine if servicemen fought over doing house calls at our homes because they knew we were Christians and they would be blessed just by coming. Imagine if the property value of the house next door went up because people increased their offers to buy for the chance to have Christian neighbors like you. We're kind of chuckling to ourselves, aren't we? But think about it. If you moved tomorrow, how much would the lives of your neighbors change? Or how different would things be for those within your community? And if the answer is, not much, or actually their lives might be better, it may be time to rethink our witness and what we're doing. Friends, Abraham here invites us to consider extravagant hospitality, hospitality that seems outlandish, over the top, hospitality reserved and fit for a visit from even God himself, which church is precisely the challenge for us today. Close to 2,000 years later, referring to this very account of Abraham, among others, the Apostle Paul encourages first century believers in this way. He says, do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Paul suggests that serving strangers, providing hospitality, may involve more than we think it does. And this is a concept that Jesus himself unpacks in Matthew 25. He says, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. And confused, the righteous will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you, a stranger, and invite you in, needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick Or in prison and go visit you. The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Did you hear that? When we serve others, when we practice hospitality towards strangers, we are serving God himself. And if that is the case, Abraham's example of enthusiastic and extravagant hospitality is the example we ought to follow because that is what God himself deserves. Well, beyond the hospitality of Abraham, the second thing that we see in this text is God's kindness. So we see Abraham's hospitality and we also see God's kindness here. During the meal, the men initiate a significant conversation. Verse 9. Where is your wife, Sarah? They asked him. Now, first of all, if Abraham didn't know already, this would have tipped him off that these were no ordinary men. As they addressed Abraham's wife by name. Which strangers would have no business knowing. And not only that, but they referred to her by her recently God-given, God-changed name, Sarah, as opposed to her ordinary common name, Sarai. What we see here is that these visitors knew Abraham and Sarah. 
And they had come to meet with them for a purpose. These are not men just simply passing by. Now, Sarah, as Abraham points out in verse 9, was inside the tent, outside, out of the sight of the guests, as would have been customary for women at the time. And so one of the men, namely Yahweh, God, begins to speak a little louder to ensure that Sarah could hear what they were saying. And what God does here is remarkably kind to Sarah. You see, throughout this entire narrative of Abraham and his family that we have been walking through for months, it has been Abraham and only Abraham who has heard from the Lord directly. All that Sarah has heard as they travel to unknown places, as they participate in strange activities and covenantal practices, was hearsay or secondhand information. For the past 25 plus years, Sarah has heard of this promise that Abraham would have a son and a great nation that she would conceive in her old age. But how hard was that to believe as she approached 90 years old and had yet to hear it from God himself? That is until God came for supper that day. And speaking intentionally loud for Sarah to hear with her own ears, God speaks the promise again, this time for the first time to Sarah. Verse 10, you can just picture, right? I will surely, right, like that whole kind of, I'm talking louder so that someone else can hear. He says, I will surely return to you about this time next year and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Right, God, who's already shared this promise with Abraham numerous times, makes it clear to Sarah as well that this son was indeed coming and that this son would be born within the year. Now, can you imagine after 25 years how difficult this would be to believe, hearing these words from behind a tent wall out of the mouth of a stranger? Sarah had heard this promise before. But the past 25 years had proven long and tiring and discouraging. And from within the tent, within herself, she responds through those years of doubt with a melancholy, hopeless, unbelieving laughter. I think you know the kind of laughter we're talking about. Verse 11 and 12. Abraham and Sarah were already old, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, after I'm worn out and Abraham is old, will I now have this pleasure? Sarah, perhaps calloused, perhaps desensitized to the joy of this promise that she had placed her hopes in for 25 years, remains unconvinced. And this... Doubt seems reasonable, doesn't it? Right? Sarah's doubt seems reasonable. Sarah was 90 years old with a 100-year-old husband, and the language here suggests that they aren't even intimate with each other anymore, let alone could they conceive if they were. Sarah was laughing to herself at the absurdity of it all. And church, let us not forget the absurdity of it all. 
Right? We would be laughing too. We should be laughing when we read a story like this. I'm sure that the original hearers, as it was told in ancient Israel, laughed at this part in the story. Imagine the thought of a senior couple in our church getting pregnant well into their old age. Right? This isn't reasonable news. This isn't a logical plan. But what we learn here in the lives of Sarah and Abraham is that God is sometimes the God of the unreasonable. The God of the impossible. The God even of the absurd if it advances his purposes. Listen to his response to Sarah's doubt. He says in verse 14, Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? And then he repeats. He doubles down on what he said earlier. He says, is anything too hard to the Lord? For the Lord, I will return to you at the appointed time next year. And Sarah will have a son. You see, God encourages Sarah through the tent wall. He points out that, yes, the idea of a 90-year-old woman having a child is not normal. Right? That is very hard, but nothing is too hard for God, including a barren woman giving birth well past childbearing years. You see, God is not limited by age, by biology, by social norms. God can do anything that he pleases, and what he pleases is to grant Abraham and Sarah a son. Pretty incredible words. But it's likely what God said just before the encouragement that he can do anything that seals the deal for Sarah and invites her to trust in his words. Verse 13. Why did Sarah laugh and say, will I really have a child now that I'm old? It seems like a pretty normal sentence. But in this statement, God shows Sarah his power. Notice what we read in verse 12. Sarah laughed to herself. Sarah thought. Sarah didn't do any of this out loud. You see, God reveals to her who he is by pointing out her very thoughts. He calls out her silent doubts as if she had blurted them out for all to hear. And in doing so, the message made clear to Sarah is, as scholar Bruce Watke writes, the one who reads her thoughts can open her womb. If God, the all-knowing one, says that something will happen, it will happen. Now, likely embarrassed, having been called out for disbelief and in fear of the realization that God himself is in her mid Sarah, as verse 15 says, lies. And says, I didn't laugh. From behind the tent wall, the woman who had been listening in silently, hasn't said anything to this point, blurts out, I didn't laugh. She responds to hearing the voice of God herself for the very first time. And in the same way that, Ab that Adam and Eve hid in the garden because they were afraid. And the same way that Abraham deceived the Egyptians because he was afraid. Sarah tries to hide the truth of her doubt. Tries to self-justify because she was afraid. 
And it's here where we see God show Sarah another kindness. After Sarah lies to God, actually in a sense calls him the liar, that won't happen. God does not rebuke her harshly. Think about what God could have done in that moment. He could have easily said, all right, fine. You want to doubt me, challenge me, lie to me? I'll find someone else to bless, right? I'll find someone else to use. Yo, you don't think it'll happen? Okay, fine. It won't. But he doesn't. In a gentle rebuke, he simply states the truth saying, yeah, you did. Yes, you did laugh. And that's the end of it. God calls out her dishonesty and moves forward in truth, still seeking to bless Abraham and Sarah as he had planned all along. Church, isn't it good to know that our stupidity doesn't thwart the will of God? That our doubt doesn't prevent God from being God? That even our dishonesty doesn't disqualify us from his love and his blessing? And God even takes this one step further, foreshadowing Sarah's future joy as the conversation is ended with a subtle allusion to the coming child. Now, we don't really see it in English, but God is pointing towards something else as this conversation ends. You see, when God says, you did laugh, the language literally says, you did Isaac referring to the name of her promised son, because the name of the son to be born to her, Isaac, literally means laughter. God ends the conversation by saying, you did, Isaac. God's saying to Sarah, I will replace that eye-rolling, tired, doubtful, under-your-breath laughter with a joyous, thankful belly laugh in the person of the son that is coming one year from now. In just a few chapters, this is a a spoiler alert for a month from now or so, we do see Sarah laugh once again. Genesis 21.6. After Isaac was born, Sarah said, God has brought me laughter. God has brought me Isaac And everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And she added, you just picture her giggling as she says this, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, yet I have borne him a son in his old age. As scholar James Montgomery Boyce writes, Sarah laughed in unbelief, but God had the final word. Or you could say God had the last laugh. He turned her unbelieving laughter into that joyous and grateful laughter that honors God. May we, like Sarah, be encouraged that there is nothing too big or too hard for God and that he, as Psalm 30 tells us, is in the business of turning mourning into dancing and weeping into rejoicing. And may we also understand that even when we doubt that truth, which we all will along the way, that he deals with us gently and with grace. Church, we don't need to hide from him our thoughts, our feelings, our emotions. We can be honest before him. 
knowing that he is in control, that he is gentle, and that he is good. And the third thing that we see in this text is divine friendship. Right, we see Abraham's hospitality, God's kindness, and we see divine friendship. If you think all the way back, if you can think that far back, to our introductory chapters in the book of Genesis. Do you remember why we were created? Why God made humans in his own image in the first place? So that we could know him and be known by him, right? We were created for relationship with God. And what we see in this passage is a physical representation of the relationship we are all invited into with him. Right, remember our question at the beginning this morning about who we would choose to share a meal with if we could? Well, this passage teaches us that a meal with God is possible. In fact, every meal with God is possible. You see, in the chapter that precedes this one, if you remember, God initiated a covenant to be with and present among Abraham's people, right? All of his descendants. It's what we read just a, few, a couple of months ago. And some of the language in that covenant in Genesis 17 was that Abraham and his people are to walk together with God. Verse 7 told us that God would be their God. Verse 21 said they will be his people. Right? The primary blessing of the covenant is intimacy with God. Right? Let me say that again. The primary blessing of the covenant is intimacy with God, something that would be otherwise impossible. Through this covenantal relationship, Abraham and all those who come after him can be called friends of God. James 2.23 says, the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. Right? The result of, of Abraham's credited righteousness is friendship with God. Right? God's grace leads us to intimacy with him. It opens the door for friendship with a holy God. And in today's text, we see God begin to enact that intimacy in a new way. Right? You see, God, who up in, in this story until now has been a voice to Abraham, veiled, coming through dreams and fire, now comes to Abraham in an unveiled, accessible, tangible way, conversing over a meal face to face. Right? This is a huge deal as God humbles himself to pursue friendship with Abraham. And this meal symbolizes God's desire to share this kind of intimacy with all of his children, to be accessible to them, and that includes us. Right? Just as God initiates this encounter, right? Abraham doesn't need to conjure up God's presence. Just as God comes to Abraham's turf, Right? Abraham didn't have to climb some mountain or come into some temple. Just as God initiates the conversation, sharing his plans, even going so far as to include Abraham in what he's doing in the world, as we will see in full view next week, as God and Abraham discuss the fate of Sodom. 
Just in the same way, God has come to each one of us. He initiates the encounter. He comes onto our turf, and he invites a conversation and intimacy with him. Right? God has come to us, making himself known through his son, through his word, through the presence of his spirit, meeting us where we are inviting us to converse with him through prayer and to walk each and every moment with him. In short, God has invited us to be his friends. Of this passage, James Montgomery Boyce writes, if this incident from the life of Abraham says nothing else to us, it should at least say that God desires to be a friend to us and have us be friends to him. If we are not his friends, it's not God's reluctance or inaccessibility that's the problem. It's our sin. God desires to know us and has done everything, pos- everything to make it possible. The- this is precisely what we just celebrated at Christmas time, right? Emmanuel, God among us. Right? This is the whole Christmas story. God came to our turf, John 1. While we were still sinners, Romans 5, dying to remove the barriers between us and him, Psalm 103, and rising again to give us new and eternal life, 1 Corinthians 15, placing his very own spirit within us, 1 Corinthians 3, and giving us his word, Deuteronomy 29, so that we could know him and be called his friends forever, John 6. Right, this unique experience of Abraham in Genesis 18, sharing a meal with God becomes perpetually available and eternally possible for all of us through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Because through him, we partake of the bread that produces eternal life with God. Scholar R. Kent Hughes explains. He says, he, he's referring to Jesus, he is the meal. As partakers of the covenant meal, we are in deepest intimacy with him. When we obey, we sit at the table with him. That's why he called the lukewarm church of Laodicea to repent, saying, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Listen to this part. The repentant believer has a perpetual meal before him. Perpetual intimacy with Christ. And the meal is eternal, to be drunk anew in the Father's kingdom. Church, we are invited to the eternal meal, to an eternal intimacy with God. But in order to do that, we need to understand the difference between fans and friends. You see, fans know a lot about someone. I'm a fan of Mark Shifley, for example. I know his number. I know his position. I know some of his stats. I own the jersey. I know the junior team he played for. I even knew where he grew up. I even know where he grew up. But I don't actually know him. I've never talked with him. I don't have any inside jokes with him. I don't know what makes him tick. We've never shared a meal together or a special moment. Well, friends, on the other hand, Friends actually know one another. They spend time with one another. They care for one another. They trust one another. They share meals. They do life together. And church, God is inviting us not simply to be his fans, but to be his friends. I believe that the statement 
and sentiment that Jesus shared with his disciples extends to us as well. John 15. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends for everything that I learned from my father I have made known to you. Jesus calls those who follow him his friends. Okay, so what's the action step? Right? How do we participate in a divine friendship with God? Well, how do we participate in any friendship? We're with them. We spend time with them. As we've seen in our text today, we do that through serving others, by practicing extravagant hospitality. We do that through intentional time with him in open and honest dialogue, through prayer and digging into his word. We do that through obedience, as John 15 said, by trusting him enough to do what he says. And we do that by noticing him, simply by acknowledging his presence in every moment, right? Decompartmentalizing our lives so we look for him in the everyday, not just on Sunday or while doing devotions. But it all starts, church, by receiving the gift of eternal life. The gift that Jesus offers through his death and resurrection that enables us to know and be with him forever. And we're going to wrap up in just a moment. But if you've never received that gift or said yes to being a friend of God and you want to do that today, in just a minute I'm going to pray and I invite you to pray along with me. And you can do that right now. So let's pray together. God, I thank you that you have made yourself available to me. That you came to earth so that I could know you. God, I know I'm not perfect. And I thank you for your forgiveness through Jesus Christ on the cross. And that because of his death and resurrection, I can live free from the guilt and shame of what I've done. God, I ask that you would come into my life. Grant me your Holy Spirit. Draw near to me. Help me draw near to you. And help me live not simply as a fan of yours, but as your friend. Amen. Now, if you've prayed along with me this morning, I invite you to come to the front after the service and and tell one of us. Let us know. We'd love to pray with you. Love to encourage you as you take the next steps of following Jesus. Or if you have questions about what it looks like to walk with God or have other prayer requests, come up after the final song and we'd love to talk with you, to pray with you, to be with you. But right now, I invite you to stand with us as we respond together in worship of the God of the universe, our friend. Thanks for listening with us. For more information about our church or upcoming services and events, please visit us at grantmemorial.ca or on social media at at grantmemorialchurch.com.